Radio 1 91 FM podcast. Mr Speaker. I'm joined uh, by Jeffrey Miller and John Moore for Politics. Morena to you both. Kia ora Yes, yes. Well, welcome to the show. It's Wednesday morning. It is 28 to 9. Uh, we're going to kick off this morning with Labour Cabinet Minister Chris Farfoy. He's been forced to apologise um, to the Prime Minister after a text message uh, from a celebrity friend um, f- uh, where he promised to help him out over an immigration matter uh, that was leaked... I wonder how how the text messages get leaked. They're personal, um, but I guess I mean, not everybody knows who Chris Farfoy is. I mean, he was pr- pretty much the most um, I don't know when he he's he, he's new to cabinet, uh, but he was he was on everybody's radar for a long time. He's one of those up and comers. But who exactly is Chris Farfoy, John? Okay, so Chris Farfoy, as you said, now is a Labour cabinet minister. Um, he's Polynesian. Uh, he is a uh, uh, yes. I think the media is really sort of um, up to this point. It's sort of orientated towards him because he's, he's a very confident and articulate um, young member of parliament, mm-hmm. um, and also he's a person of colour. Uh, and and both Labour and National, or other parties, trying to elevate uh, people from. Um, what can be called marginalised communities um, and yes he's got himself over the, in the shit uh, over accusations of um, essentially corruption mm. um, which actually Geoffrey uh, has got a far better handle on this than me yeah well yeah what was the message about Geoffrey what did this say and what actions did he actually take right so these uh, messages were leaked uh, presumably by Jason Carrison the musician friend of Farfoy. Uh, they were leaked on Thursday night to News Hub, uh, which broke the story. And on the face of it, the messages do look quite damning towards uh, Farfoy. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, Jason Kerrison, uh, he was looking for help with an immigration matter for his mother. Um, she was trying to get a partnership visa for her husband, who's from Kenya. And so Jason Kerrison, the musician, was texting Chris Farfoy, um, asking for help for his uh, intervention, um, because, of course, Farfoy is a minister, he's in the government, so if you want something done, you know, you might think, go to someone in the government, if you've got a mate in the government, then that would be great. But, of course, you know, we view that kind of thing as, as corruption, you know, if you're going to get special treatment. But the responses that Farfoy was, was sending were not kind of stand back, oh, look, I can't intervene on your family, your friend, or, or whatever. They were actually very positive, um, making it sound like he was doing uh, doing things to, to help Kerrison out. Um, so just some of these messages that Farfoy sent, he said, uh, hey, bro, I will make a call on Monday. I know it's genuine, as I know you travelled for the wedding a few years back. I will talk to the people that can speed things up can you please send surname and immigration New Zealand file number? Bro, I have a plan, but I can't be plastered over Facebook. Um, mm. So, you know, if you read all these, and you, it kind of looks quite bad, but then you look into the details of it and uh, Farfoy's defence of himself, um, then I think that Farfoy uh, just manages to get out of this. I don't think it looks great for him, and it was certainly unwise, his actions, but what it 
what we do seem to have found out later is that he, he doesn't really seem to have acted on this. Um, and so he was essentially, I, I think Papua was exaggerating or bluffing to his friend, Kerrison, that he was doing stuff that actually he wasn't. Um, so perhaps he didn't want to, I don't know, to lose face or, or whatever with Kerrison um, and was sort of leading him on a bit. Um, but I think a couple of things saved Farfoy over this. The first thing was that um, he did go to the National MP, Matt King, um, and went to his office and asked for his help with it, um, which essentially is what ministers should do in these situations. Um, they should just refer it to the local MP and, and, and stand away because they do have a conflict of interest being friends with the person. Mm. Um, and he did do that, and Matt King's office uh, has confirmed that, that they were contacted by Chris Farford. Now, if you're going to cover something up, you wouldn't go to the National MP about it. No. Um, so I think that's the first thing that saves Farford. And the second thing that I think saves Farford on this is the fact that Kerrison was angry about it. You know, he went to News Hub and leaked the messages and, yeah. and essentially ducked on his friend because nothing was happening. So if something really was happening and Farfoy really was helping him out, then, you know, he'd be keeping quiet. So I think those are the things that kind of save Farfoy on this. Um, and it looks bad, you know, these quotes, bro, I have a plan. They're very uh, quotable, and I'm sure National will be using them in the House uh, this week. They will be, be loving the bro, I've got a plan. Um, at line, but I don't think probably this is, in the end is resignation. It will look very bad on the face of it. No, I mean, what's up with Jason Kerrison knocking his mate in? That's ridiculous just because nothing moved on it. Uh, and of course, Chris Farfoy is the brother of Jason Farfoy. A lot of people will know from um, what now. Uh, he had his own political party for a while. They were called the Party Party. Um, uh, great, great. The kids wanted to vote, but they were too young. But if uh, the Greens get their way, they probably can soon in the next election. <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, and Jason Farfoy is a, a, a great musician in his own right. And I guess that's where all this friendship with, uh, you know, these other musicians come in. Um, but it seems... Uh, yeah, uh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kerrison... I think he's going to lose a lot of face on this one. It's ridiculous, but um, you know, we'll I guess the problem was, though was that Farfoy raised expectations that he was going to help so out his mate. So cry to the media about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a despicable thing to do. Uh, <laughs> you fired because oh, certainly yeah. not best friends forever. Maybe anymore. the mum, maybe Kerrison's mum did it. Who knows? Mm, Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. So I mean. So, so really, it, it was a story of uh, over-exaggerated promises from Chris Farfoy, uh, but but not actually acting on those promises, not actually putting those promises into practice. And in the end, that's yeah, that's really what's saying. Yeah, not that we know of. It, 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 there's no evidence to say that he acted on those promises, but we'll have to wait and see if any more information comes out. However, it, it was completely unacceptable for Farfoy to indicate that he could use his position um, uh, of power within the government and cabinet to help out a mate and um, just giving that indication uh, I think is sackable um, Really? I do because I think uh, um, I mean I've lived in society Considering that the story we're going to move on next and what you've got to say about that you think this is sackable? I think it's sackable that uh, he, he should be removed from cabinet to give a clear message to um, other MPs uh, that in no way are they to give favourable preference to friends or family members But or, he didn't um, Or even to indicate they might do so um, I, I think for a period of time he yeah, effectively should be stood down uh, and then be brought back back into cabinet at a, at a later point uh, yeah. once, once he's uh, served his term so to say I just think li 
I've lived in countries like Thailand and, and Brunei and also widely travelled in other countries like Malaysia and Indonesia where, they, where, where it's just standard for politicians to help out mates and family members and, and, and people, um, politicians from um, top level politicians in government and regional government and bureaucrats enrich themselves uh, and their family members and their mates through the positions they hold. Um, fortunately we don't have that situation in New Zealand but if there's, if there's any hint of it I just think it should be clamped down on right away uh, because you can you, if it's seen as okay or tolerable uh, or you only get a slap on the hand and that's what often happens in places like Thailand that's found out someone's corrupt they get a slap on the hand yeah. and, and then they go back to their business it, it just leads to a situation where um, yeah, corruption can start to grow in, mm. in, in the body, body politic. I would have thought that the outcome, the fact that it has been put into the public sphere, uh, is, is probably punishment, punishment enough. You know, I mean, obviously, mm. you know, he, he's, he's had a telling off. Everybody knows. Yeah. I don't think he's going to move on from that, Jeffrey. Yeah, I mean, if, if I could just jump in, I think um, Arden's problem here, just in Arden's problem, is that she hasn't set the highest level of standards for her ministers. Claire Curran got a second chance and mm. uh, in the end sort of had to sack herself. She ended up resigning <laughs> uh, when she should have been sacked and Harden has just been really like, reluctant to take action on ministers for doing anything wrong. You know, Phil Twyford is still there as a minister. He hasn't got the portfolios he had but he's still there as a minister. Um, and Shane Jones has been doing dodgy things, has not been sacked. I mean, there have been all kinds of other ministers doing dodgy things um, who haven't been punished. And that's the problem when you set a precedent. So if she had gone hard on Claire Curran, I mean, Claire Curran really the first time should have been sacked over mm, the yeah. Carol Hirschfeld incident. If Claire Curran had been sacked, then I think it would have been much easier to stand down Chris Farfoy. But this is the problem when you, uh, when you let ministers away with stuff early on in the term and it becomes harder to, to sack people uh, later. Um, and if you go back to the John Key government, he, at the outset, was quite uh, quick to stand ministers down and sack them for uh, you know, allegations of impropriety. Um, and Richard Worth was one of the ministers, Pansy Wong was another in that first term. There were, there were quite a number. Um, so I think John Key, over time, he became a bit more lax, but um, I think that is the right approach. And... Yeah, I mean, if Claire Curran had been sacked, it would have been much easier to stand down Chris Farfall, at least to an investigation into it all. And yeah, as I said, he's been, at the very least, he's been very, very unwise with all of this. Um, and it's only because I think, yeah, I mean, I, I take John's point on board, but, um, you know, when you check the details of it, um, I think there is some leeway to, to let uh, Farfall off on this, possibly. But, um, you know, if you were going, if you're looking at this, more harshly, um, you would you would stand him down, yeah. Yeah, well, I say he sacked Jason Kerrison and don't buy his music anymore. Um, not that I would have done it in the first place, although I do love that New Zealand Post ad. Uh, all right, let's move on. The ODT has been condemned for publishing a cartoon that uh, made light and a joke of the measles crisis in Samoa. Um, there's been an apology from the ODT and suspension of the cartoonist uh, uh, Garrick Tremaine. Um, yeah... Yeah, um, the reaction. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think uh, the cartoon was uh, bad taste, uh, if not despicable. Um, uh, 
I think there was underlying racism and othering, essentially, with that cartoon. Um, Would Garrett Tremaine, for example, the cartoonist in question, uh, make light of deaths in New Zealand uh, in relation to the measles epidemic? Um, I don't think so. It's very easy to other uh, people thousands of miles away and of a different colour and a different culture. Um, So the the cartoon essentially had two women, uh, white women, older white women, walking up to a travel agent, one saying to the other, I asked, uh, what are the least popular spots at the moment uh, and the woman replies the ones people are picking up in Samoa um, so Garrett Tremaine claims that th- th- there was no deep meaning or underlying message uh, in that cartoon that it was just a simple attempt to uh, crack a joke um, uh, using a bit of a pun um, and, and that was it and he's admitted now it was in bad taste although it, it clearly seems that he's been forced uh, mm. to apologise he certainly didn't apologise initially and said this was all a case of political correctness etc um, so there was a protest uh, that uh, called out the ODT and Garrett Tremaine for being blatantly racist um, and um, there were some slogans about shutting down the ODT or at least shutting down the racism in the ODT and it seems that the protesters want uh, Tremaine to be sacked for good. Yeah, so that's what it basically comes down to in terms of the controversial cartoon. Well, I mean, where are the editor's role in all this? This is one thing I'm wondering. I mean, it's one thing for you to uh, draw this cartoon, Mm. uh, but the other thing is to get it published. Yeah, so uh, the editor of ODT has taken responsibility. I, I don't think he's necessarily indicated that he did sign it off, and there seemed to be a sort of a, a rather loose attitude to publishing Garrett Tremaine's cartoons. Mm. Um, basically, if he, if he gives a good enough cartoon, it gets put in the paper without any real questions asked. There have been controversial cartoons uh, in the past that he has come up with. Uh, uh, one where he made light of sexual abuse allegations against the police, um, uh, yeah, there's the Louise Nicholas case. Yes, um, and and there was a staff member apparently who called up uh, at the time, and the ODT called upon the editors not to publish that, and she was uh, sort of uh, laughed off, yeah. essentially. Um, yeah, so he's got a history of controversial cartoons. And the way I see Garrett Tremaine, I don't think he's a deep thinker. Uh, I don't think he's... Yeah, he's a skillful artist, but I think his humour is pretty shallow and on the surface. Um, I don't think he's directly necessarily racist or bigoted. Uh, I think he just aims to to make a joke uh, in a very often very superficial ways out of make light of, of various situations. However, um, if there's a consistency there that he He's uh, um, making life of situations for people of colour or, say, women who have been sexually abused or Māori, um, for example. He's had some cartoons um, which have seen as uh, derogatory towards Māori. Then you can say, well, there's a picture building up there that maybe there's an underlying ideology that maybe he's mm. not even aware of, uh, but just his general sort of um, uh, consciousness towards uh, uh, people of colour and subjugate, subjugated groups that, in a sense, yes, uh, you can argue that he does punch down uh, in a sense, and um, hopefully he's become more conscious uh, of the role that he plays now as a cartoonist. Yeah, well, but he's got a platform, right? And so you shouldn't give these kind of people platforms. Um, you know, like you said, the Māori thing, like there was that one where they were looking on the shoreline out at Cook's boat or something, and they said, at last, someone to blame. Like, that's shocking. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he, he's feeding into certain races 
stereotypes and uh, um, it, 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 and he is promoting an ideology there um, around uh, Maori Pakia Maori Crown relations. Of course, I would argue that uh, any piece of art and any cartoon can be interpreted in in multiple ways. Uh, um, uh, there's always should be a limit. Uh, in terms of interpretation. So when I initially saw this cartoon of these two women, I thought, okay, it is in bad taste. Who's he directing uh, um, the critique at? Is there any underlying critique here? Is he actually actually critiquing sort of white tourist makers who just see the third world as a place to lie on a beach and uh, and drink their um, martinis, etc., and and have very little concern for the social conditions in third world countries? So it's just an inconvenience now that you can't go to Samoa for many Western type tourists. Mm. Um, he claims uh, that no, that there was absolutely no underlying message there at all. That it was just a, um, yeah, just a simple uh, joke uh, that popped into his head. Um, yeah, so I think uh, there's, there's lots of. Um, room here to critique him and attack him and attack the ODT uh, but the big question is uh, should he be sacked, should he be banned and should these, uh, generally should he not be allowed uh, to show his cartoons in the public arena? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean yeah, if he's self-publishing, sure um, What do you think, uh, Jeffrey? Well I think I mean look, I don't think the cartoon has any, any redeeming features at all they I, I don't think it's worth defending. It's not particularly insightful. It, it, like many of Tremaine's cartoons, as John said, it's, it's a sort of superficial level of humour. It's a cheap pun on the word spots. And, you know, to be honest, I think Tremaine uh, was due for retirement a long, long time ago. Um, and I think Tremaine has done uh, many offensive cartoons over the years. I mean, I just, you know, a, a couple that came to mind for me. Uh, I remember there was an earthquake in Kashmir back in 2005 and Tremaine did a cartoon showing a person running from the destruction uh, and Tremaine captioned it as the world's fastest Indian, um, which was the name of a film that came out, I think, in the same year, which is pretty distasteful. Uh, I remember Parakura Horamir, the Maori Affairs Minister under Labour, the Helen Clark's government. Uh, he had talked about... Uh, not being allowed on the school bus when he was a child because he was Maori and um, Garrett Tremaine drew a cartoon showing a very overweight young Parakoa Horomir, you know, not physically fitting in through the, the door of the bus um, and, you know, there are I, I think there are so many insensitive ones from Tremaine that yeah, I think they are uh, harmful um, at the same time, I guess there, there is always the free speech argument, and there have been certainly arguments over cartoons over the years. Um, I think the Herald lost a cartoonist um, um, good 15 years ago, probably now. Um, he was drawing anti-Israeli cartoons, um, and the, that was too much for Herald, so they sacked him. Um, and if you go back also to 2005, and you had the Danish cartoon in the controversy when uh, the Prophet Muhammad was depicted in various offensive ways, you know, with a, um, a bomb fuse coming out of his head and this kind of thing. Um, and that led to riots in the streets in the Middle East and Danish and Norwegian embassies in the Middle East being torched in, in quite a debate over free speech in Europe. And you had, you know, the both sides sort of coming out and you had some people saying, oh, no, free speech is, um, is everything. Um, so we're going to publish them, and you had, 
and some newspapers sort of publishing these cartoons in solidarity, which I think was not particularly uh, helpful. Um, so, you know, you've got these two sides which are, are kind of polar opposites to each other. Um, you know, cartoonists are, by their nature, I think, quite often on the line. Um, you know, they do seek often to offend um, by their nature. But I think, as, as John mentioned, you know, the, the difference between punching up and punching down, and I think good cartoons very often, I, I'm not sure you can say always, but I think very often are critiques of the people in power. Um, and, and you know, that's what their, their best use is. Uh, and I don't think this cartoon was in any way a critique of people in power. I think you could have done a cartoon about the measles crisis critiquing um, the government, uh, whether it's in New Zealand or in Samoa, uh, that possibly would have been all right. Um, so I don't think it's the case that any cartoon about the measles crisis is off limit, but I think it's the way you do the cartoon and who you're uh, critiquing, and I think that was what was offensive or what the um, people took offence to with this cartoon uh, that Tremaine did. Mm. And of course that's all under review now. All right, uh, speaking of some more, uh, more than 60 people have died now, I think 62 as of this morning, uh, as a result of the measles epidemic. Um, what are some of the main facts? Yeah, so in terms of this tragedy, um, as of December the 7th, there's actually been 68 deaths, out of a population of 201,000, and there's been over 4,000 cases of measles. A state of emergency has been um, declared in Samoa, um, actually since November the 17th, um, and uh, the governments are now um, are pushing through with immunising the majority of the population. So uh, there was a two-day curfew initially, which has been lifted, um, and the vaccination program has uh, pulled in almost 90% of the population now, apparently, in terms of immunisation. Um, going back to why this has happened, uh, essentially it's happened because of the very low rates of immunisation of Samoa, are mm. far lower than other um, Pacific Islands. Um, the, the, the immediate cause for this low rate of immunisation comes down to um, two nurses who were uh, helping to implement the immunisation programme um, um, mixed up the solution and two babies died mm. uh, as a result. Uh, the, the government then, to my understanding, the Samoan government then put the immunisation um, programme on hold and of course the um, um, anti-vaxxers, so people who are ideologically opposed to vaccination, um, from overseas, uh, from New Zealand, but uh, especially from America, uh, use the internet to whip up a fear over the immunisation programme in mm. Samoa. Um, and so, yeah, this fear took hold and uh, people um, didn't want, obviously, who were very concerned that their children might die like these two babies did. Yeah, uh, yeah it's understandable. Yeah, it, it, it is understandable. Um, and uh, so that's led, really, to the tragedy that we have in this case. And, of course, where did the measles come from? Um, it seems that, um, it almost seems 100% likely that it came from New Zealand, Yeah, w whether from tourists or whether from uh, Samoan New Zealanders uh, uh, going back to Samoa to meet family. I don't think it's... A, it's necessarily clear, but it's, it, it seems to be clear that it's come from New Zealand. Yeah, and with that, you know, there has been a, a lot of push on the New Zealand government to take responsibility over this. 
uh, and uh, to take some partial blame. Uh, I mean, is that really justified uh, in the current world we live in, where air travel was taking people all around the world? I mean, the measles apparently, when it came, uh, when it's, the epidemic started here in Aotearoa, this last one, uh, it originally came from the United States, mm. and no one was really calling the United get the United States to take some partial blame of it uh, there. So, I mean, can we can we put blame on first the Samoan government and uh, New Zealand government? I think so. I think there's a, a, a number of groups who um, we can point the finger at, uh, even say have blood on their hands. Uh, the, the fact that the Samoan government seems to have suspended its immunisation programme or wound down its immunisation programme after these two deaths, uh, I think we have to question. Um, uh, of course, uh, naturally there was huge amounts of fear from um, um, the Samoan community uh, over these two deaths, but the government should have uh, put all its resources into to uh, winning the battle of ideas, essentially, countering those anti-vaxxer ideas and, and, and pointing out uh, why this tragedy happened with these two babies dying. And it really should have pushed through with this immunisation programme. Um, New Zealand government, uh, um, health officials and various bureaucrats and, and who knows which politicians, would, there would have been people who knew of the problem with low immunisation rates in Samoa compared with other Pacific islands uh, and, and therefore um, when the measles crisis happened in New Zealand, uh, I, I believe that there should have been uh, rigorous checks on people going to Samoa from New Zealand, uh, testing at the airport or whatever or mm. maybe even temporarily uh, halting those flights um, and, and generally New Zealand um, you know you've got all these little Pacific Island states and, and, and uh, um, New Zealand and Australia play the role um, if you want to put it in a, a, a positive way of big brother big sister towards these island states or if you want to put it in a negative way uh, or they almost play a, um, a, a neo-colonial or neo-imperialist role in the Pacific and of course Samoa was uh, <laughs> under the control of New Zealand for many years and before mm. that um, Germany so it has been a colony of European powers and of New Zealand um, and New Zealand certainly doesn't have a good legacy in, in relation to Samoa and its role as a imperialist overlord um, so I think yeah uh, the, the New Zealand government uh, should have worked closely with the Samoan government and NGOs etc and making sure uh, that they countered uh, the anti-vaxxer propaganda mm. uh, that they um, uh, pushed through with full immunisation and that when this crisis happened in New Zealand that they dealt with it very seriously uh, even up to the point of maybe stopping flights for a certain period yeah, I mean, but with stopping flights, Samoa is a tourism destination. Mm. A lot of its GDP comes from tourism, so it's kind of a double-edged sword there, right? I mean, things are going to come into the country uh, because people are coming from all all over the world, uh, but they need these people to come, um, so that they've got to somehow negate those risks somehow. But they can't, re you know, they'll be they'll be thinking we can't stop the flights because we need the money. Um, so it's difficult. Um, what are your thoughts on this, Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with John. I mean, hopefully, um, if anything good comes out of these measles outbreaks this year, is that it shows why vaccinations are important. And I think um, perhaps that is the best counter to uh, the anti-vaxxers. And it's perhaps easier if you've got a modern epidemic to point to um, rather than, you know, pointing back to the, the Spanish flu at the end of the First World War, which all seems a bit remote to us now. Um, but the measles epidemic in New Zealand this year, that was the worst epidemic of any kind uh, for 20 years um, since the flu epidemic. 
back in 1999, um, and it was the worst measles outbreak since 1938. So now you've got this sort of experience, perhaps it will be easier to counter the the anti-vaxxers. And, you know, I think to a degree the anti-vaxxers have been sort of written off as pranks, as harmless cranks, and their power's been a bit underestimated. Um, hopefully now um, in, in New Zealand or somewhere or any, any country at the moment, we'll see that, you know, this is the power of, of Facebook, social media, this stuff goes under the surface. And you don't have to convince everybody um, if you're an anti-vaxxer to actually kind of have a big, big impact. If you can reduce the vaccination rate by, you know, a margin of, of 20 percentage points, you can, in fact, wipe out that herd immunity, um, which, you know, then has, has, can have devastating consequences as we've, as we've seen. Um, so, you know, also you, you have had this failure in, in government, if you look in Samoa with the... Uh, the vaccination that went wrong last year, the nurses who mixed the vaccine with anaesthetic, expired anaesthetic, rather than what they should have done with, I think, distilled water. Um, you know, this was a failure on their part, and trust is very fragile in, in government, and, you know, it, it, essentially this provided an opening for the anti-vaxxers. You know, something happened, and two babies died because of an improperly administered vaccine, and so... You know, you, you have to take all the precautions possible and you have to counter the anti-vaxxers and say, look, this was a mistake. Uh, we're very sorry about that, but that doesn't change the fact that vaccinations are hugely important. Mm, right. There's been 150,000 deaths worldwide uh, due to the current epidemic, which is worldwide. Mm. Um, all right, well, we're running out of time. Thank you uh, both for joining me this morning. Thank you. Uh, have a wonderful week up in Auckland, Jeffrey. or how long? You're up there for a while, aren't you? Mm-hmm. That's right. So we'll talk to you. Yeah, well, what, what did I say? Auckland. Auckland. Oh, God. What did I say that? Well, it used to be that. Well, it was the capital for two minutes. Um, yeah, cheers. And thank you to you, John. I'll see you next week in studio. And we'll talk to you on the phone again next week, Jeffrey. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.